and welcome to the Czar on Fascinating Details podcast. This week we are doing another mini episode slash bonus episode for you guys. Welcome Darcy, my co-host for the day. Say hi, Darcy. Hey, what's up? Excellent, excellent. Uh, we're going to do a little mini episode this week that covers off on some of the cool things that happened during June in history. This list I got from historyxer.com, and it's called Eight Historical Events That Happened in June. The first on this list is Angry Parisians Man the Barricades, and it happened June 5th, 1832 in Paris. In the Tudieres Garden, the young writer Victor Hugo was strolling by the river when he heard gunshots. Trouble was brewing in the working-class district of Les Hayes. Hugo went, to the, went out to investigate for 15 minutes, he hid behind a pillar and watched the king's soldiers firing on Republican rebels. At last, the battle moved away, giving Hugo the chance to make his escape. It was a moment that stayed with him for the rest of his life. Some 13, three, some 13 years later, he began work on a novel in Paris during these tumultuous June days called Les Miserables. So that was the basis oh, for his famous play slash book that's mm. been in theaters for years. But today, thanks to the success of the musical and film versions... Les Miserables is by far Hugo's best-known work. Many people assume that it is set during the French Revolution. That is not the case. It is, in fact, set during the insurrection at its heart, which was a two-day uprising against the Orleanist king Louis-Philippe, which ended in failure. This June rebellion was triggered by the food shortages of the late 1820s, a devastating cholera epidemic, and the death of the popular general Jean Le Marquet, who had become a hero to the working classes of Paris. At his funeral on June 5th, Republican demonstrators rallied the crowds waving red flags and calling for liberty or death. The mood turned ugly, and by the evening, rioters had taken over control of much of central and eastern Paris, throwing up the barricades that play much, much of a role in Hugo's novel. It was all for nothing. The army stayed loyal to Louis Philippe, and by the morning, the uprising had lost momentum. The last uh, demonstrators were then surrounded by the king's troops, and by nightfall, it was all over. This was a very interesting time period in Paris, just in general. Um, and I think it kind of is juxtaposed against the stuff that's been happening there today. Um, there has been a lot of issue with middle class, upper class, people not being able to make enough money to make a good living. And I think it was a very similar type of a situation back then. And it's sort of played out in these instances like the French Revolution and like this particular event that they were talking about, the June Rebellion, where people just were fed up and had had enough. And were like, we're not taking this anymore. We need to overthrow this group of people that is keeping us down and not letting us survive in a healthy sort of way. So it's a very interesting event that happened in June of um, 1832. I have a confession. Yes. Um, I've never seen or read Les Miserables. What? I know. <laughs> Holy moly. I know. I'm like, I, I might be the, the one person. It's something I think that we had to read in school. Um, oh, really? Yeah. That, you know, obviously schooling is different on West Coast, East Coast, Midwest, South and whatnot. But that was a novel that we had to read and write about for, I think it was eighth grade English class. Huh. So, yeah. anyway, so side that note. That didn't make our, uh, our rubric. It's a very sad story. For those of you who don't really know what it is about, go look it up. <laughs> There's a very... Yeah, I'm going to have to go look it up. Yeah, it's, I think um, you're talking to me there. 
it talks about the class struggles and it's about a young man who steals something and ends up going to prison. And then he ends up getting chased by the, this French police captain for most of his life. And it is, it's a sad story, but it's also one of redemption and triumph. And it's very, very interesting. It's, it's, Hugo was an excellent writer. So I think it's, it's a classic that's well worth the read if you have not looked at that book yet. I get it. I'll read it. God. So uh, no, why are you yelling at me? God. <laughs> <laughs> so number two on this list, go ahead, Darcy. So I have uh, Francis Pizarro meets a bloody end over dinner. And this was June 26th, 1541. Francisco Pizarro died as he lived sword in hand. Pizarro, who had defied the odds to bring down the Incas and conquer modern day Peru for the Spanish was almost 70 years old. As governor of New Castile, as Peru was then named, he had spent years locked in a bitter feud with a rival conquistador, Diego de Almagro. In 1538, Pizarro had 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 Almagro executed, but now the latter's son, also named Diego, wanted revenge. Pizarro was dining in his palace in Lima when Almagro burst in with about 20 armed supporters. Most of the old man's guests fled, but Pizarro stood his ground, reaching for his sword from where it hung on the wall. According to one account, he struck down two would-be assassins and ran a third through. Yikes. While he struggled to draw out his sword, however, Almagro's men stabbed him in the throat. Lying on the palace floor, Pizarro shouted, Jesus, or I guess maybe Jesus. The last thing he ever did was to draw a cross on the ground with his own blood and kiss it. The most ruthless conquistador of the age was dead. Pizarro's body was buried in Lima Cathedral, but it was not until 1977 that building workers found a lead box bearing the inscription, Here is the head of Don Francisco Pizarro de Marquez. Don Francisco Pizarro, who discovered Peru and presented it to the crown of Castile. Forensic scientists reported that the skull was broken by numerous violent blows, Perhaps a fitting end for a man steeped in violence. Good lord. They were pretty no brutal lie. back then. Pretty brutal, violent, bloody, and just awful group of people. Yeah. And what they did to the Incas was just awful as well. And I think that that was pretty, that was something that happened frequently back then. I mean, that was the conquering of different parts of the world in colonization. Yeah, colonization. Where they started it and just different, like Spain and England and some of the superpowers of the world back then just spread out and conquered mm-hmm. all these weaker, quote-unquote, countries and created sort of a different look at the world. But anyway, yeah. interesting. In America, we called it Manifest Destiny. Yeah, fucking awful is what it was. Basically taking somebody else's land and saying you conquered it and, oh, look what we discovered. And now it's it's mm-hmm. ours. <laughs> Now it's ours. This is ours now. We but take anyway, this. I'm speaking of conquering manifest destiny and all that other fun stuff. The third one on this list is June 23rd, 1940. Hitler crows over Paris. It was about 530 in the morning and Adolf Hitler's plane landed on the edge of Paris. Three large Mercedes cars were waiting to take the conqueror into town and the Nazi dictator knew exactly where he wanted to go first. The opera. As he told us, <laughs> right? As he told his minister, Albert Speer, Charles Gardner's two, or excuse me, Charles Garnier's neo-Baroque opera house was his favorite building in Paris. And now that the French capital had fallen to Germany's all-conquering army, Hitler had the chance to live out a dream. 
His tour of Paris on the 23rd of June, 1940, the only time he visited the city, was one of the greatest days of his life. France, France lay prostrate at his feet, the shame of 1918 finally avenged. As he toured the city, posing for pictures by the Eiffel Tower, he discussed plans for a victory parade. Yet he concluded that it was a bad idea. I am not in the mood for a victory parade. We aren't at the end yet. Scary. No lie. To Speer, the Nazis' chief architect Hitler waxed lyrical about the beauties of the French capital, but he was determined that Germany could do better. Berlin, he said later, must be more beautiful. We are finished in Berlin. Paris will only be a shadow when we are done. Hitler's visit was astonishingly brief, and by nine in the morning he was already heading back to Germany. It was the dream of my life to be permitted to see Paris, he told Speer as they drove back to the airfield. I cannot say how happy I am that to have that dream filled today. Speer himself was struck by his master's mood. For a moment, he wrote later, I felt something like pity for him. Three hours in Paris, the one and only time he was able to see it, made him happy when he stood at the height of his triumphs. So that was a scary period in time as well, when I think there was some indication and belief by many that the Germans and the Nazis in general would conquer the world. Yeah, this is interesting because I, I just finished The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Again, it was an audible. And that book, if you don't know, 1,200 pages. In Audible, it was actually six different books. It was so long. Wow. Um, it was really good. It was written in the 60s, or maybe in 1960, by a news correspondent named William Shire, who was in Germany when World War II broke out. It was really good. And then I actually, earlier this year, read a book called Blitz, uh, Drugs in the Third Reich. Yeah. And it was all about his doctor and how, like, how drugged up they were. And basically, like, their entire march across Poland, the reason that they were able to conquer Poland so quickly was because they were all on meth. Good Lord. Like, it was it was crazy. And talked about how crazy, like, Hitler got at the end. And obviously, like... Well, the, he was, um, like, grasping at straws. Like, he knew that he was either going to yeah. have to do this in a dramatic fashion or he was going to lose. And this is a very timely conversation, I think, in light of right. the fact that D-Day was just, I think, this last week, the celebration of D-Day, the anniversary. Yeah, D-Day was on June 6th. Um, it was the 75th anniversary of D-Day. But basically until Germany invaded the Soviet Union, they were unstoppable. It was, the, it was they kept pushing back the, the invasion of the Soviet Union until they got caught in the winter there. And you don't fight a, a ground war in Russia in the winter. No. You can't survive it. And no. that's pretty much what decimated the Eastern Front for them. And that's kind of what, what turned the tide. And, then, and that was before we actually, America actually got involved. Um, and then when America got involved on the, the Western Front. Anyways, World War II is very interesting. So that was um, in the summer. So there was still hope. They had not um, gotten to the point where they had made that critical turn where Germany became right. weakened. But if you're also looking for something that's World War II related that's very interesting, I would recommend the series The Man in the High Castle, which sort of oh, works I with... Oh, I watched the first season, or first or second season of that. It, it works so good. under the presumption that the Nazis and the Japanese... Um, people won World War II and that the U.S. and France and Europe were actually conquered. So it's a very, very yeah. interesting series. And, like, the West Coast is controlled by the Japanese Empire mm -hmm. and the East Coast is controlled by the German Empire or the Third Reich. And yeah. There's, like, this one little teeny area in Colorado where it's, like, neutral. And it's that was really cool. It really, really makes cool. you think, you know, uh, what would have happened had the evil powers... <laughs> 
conquered, had the Nazis conquered mm-hmm. during World War II and what would have happened to us and what would things have been like. It would have been a very, very different place if that had been the case. I, I have no mm-hmm. doubt. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Did you see, this is kind of a sidebar, but did you see the um, 97-year-old veteran who had parachuted into D-Day in 44? He actually parachuted back in this year. No, I did not see that. That must have been quite yeah, a triumph for him. Yeah, years old. <laughs> Get that it. That's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, so number four. A Persian spear fells Rome's last pagan emperor. This is June 26th, A.D., the year 363. So in the spring of 363, the Roman emperor Julian invaded Persia. And if you're not sure, Persia is Iran. Having ruled Rome for less than two years, he felt that he needed to prove himself to the troops on the empire's eastern frontier. In what better way than by taking their age-old enemies? On March 5th, around 60,000 Roman troops marched out of Antioch near modern-day Antakya. It's somewhere in Turkey. Uh, oh, Antakya. By, yeah. So 60,000 troops marched out of Antioch, which is near modern-day Antakya, or okay. Antakya in Turkey, okay, led it. by the emperor Julian himself. At first, everything went smoothly, like it always does, and by mid-May, Julian had crossed the Tigris River and was outside the Persian capital. Then things began to go wrong. Harassed almost daily by Persian attacks, Julian ordered his army to retreat north, and at a minor engagement on June 26th, the worst happened. Julian had thrown himself into the fray. Sorian on the emperor's military staff wrote that when suddenly a cavalry spear grazing the skin of his arm pierced his side, and fixed itself in the bottom of his liver. How the, the fuck wound does this did guy not know at that? first seem. <laughs> yeah. It's like, really? I mean, that would have had, yeah, that's either, that's either dramatics or that would have had to have been determined later when they cut him open. The wound did not at first seem serious. Julian's personal doctor washed it with wine. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There's a, the cure all back there's then. There's a technique we don't use anymore. <laughs> And then he tried to stitch up the organs. So if you're trying to stitch up the organs, that has to be a pretty, pretty big cut that yeah, you can get in there. It's not a minor scratch. <laughs> Irritate it with some Merlot. But the bleeding continued, and it became obvious that the emperor was failing. Also, kind of ironic that it was his liver, and they tried to wash it with wine. Right? Crazy. <laughs> As he lay dying. Julian entered into an intricate discussion with the philosophers Maximus and Priscus oh on God. the sublime nature of the soul. Isn't this like so typical of these at the emperors, the so Roman emperors? Yeah. And so I wonder if that's out. actually true or if that's something that was sort of, you know, because I don't necessarily think all historical accounts of that time period are accurate. Don't say. Anyway. <laughs> you're, you're a little skeptical of written history from the year 363. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So he's, so he's bleeding out and he's drunk. So he's, he's having a discussion with some philosophers on the sublime nature of the soul. And then the next paragraph says, this seems a bit unlikely. It was inevitable that the last non-Christian emperor would get short shrift from Christian writers. A fellow pagan who was a, a <laughs> sitting pagan there. was probably gilding the lily. At last, the historian went on. The swelling of his veins began to choke, choke his breath. And having drank some cold water, which he had asked for, he expired quietly about midnight in the 31st year of his age. Damn, that's so young. That is so young to be an emperor. Yeah, they (laughs) undoubtedly did a little bit of lying when it came to that. But Uh, anyway. They made it very romantic. (laughs) Uh, Number five on this list, June 16th, 1883. 183 children were crushed to death in a concert tragedy. Oh, God. Sounds fucking awful. 
The poster for Sutherland's Victoria Hall seemed wonderfully enticing on Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock. It said, The phase from the Tynemouth Aquarium will give a grand day performance for children, the greatest cheat the greatest treat for children ever given. Can you imagine? You're a child and you're like, oh my God, the greatest treat for children ever given is going to be there. I have to go. If there's not cotton candy, I'm out. No. Um, There would, it added, be prizes, a handsome present, books, toys, etc. When Mr. and Mrs. Fay took the stage on 16th of June, 1883, an estimated 2,000 children were packed into the concert hall. What followed was a tragedy of heartbreaking proportions. At the end of the show, an announcer declared that children children with specially numbered tickets would get a prize on the way out. Meanwhile, performers began handing out treats to children in the front row. Many of the 1,100 children in the galley rushed toward the stairs, worried they were going to miss out. So it was like basically a fucking stampede. At the bottom, however, they found a narrow door bolted to allow only one child through at a time. As more children stampeded down the stairs, a crush began to develop. Parents rushed to help but could not get near the door. Children started falling, bodies piling up near the door. By now, it was obvious that a terrible disaster was underway. In all, 183 children died that day, some as young as three in the aftermath, legislation provided for better emergency exits, with doors opening outwards, not inwards. Queen Victoria sent a heartfelt letter of condolence, quoting the words of Jesus, Suffer little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. This sounds fucking oh, awful. That was super depressing. Three-year-old children. Like, number one, who the fuck lets their three-year-old child just be like, oh, hey, go ahead. Go to the show. Go hear the musical concert. I know, we just talked about a 31-year-old emperor. Maybe kids started doing, maybe people started doing things a lot earlier God. back in the day. Just awful. Awful, awful, awful. That is and, what it That's, seems like there have been really quite a few of these type instances where this sort of a stampede happened in a concert type environments, but never have I heard of one with children that young. All right. So next on the list, I have Monks Witness an Extraordinary Lunar Event. And this was June 18th, 1178. Gervais of Canterbury heard an extraordinary story. Gervais, who had been ordained by Thomas Beckett, spent much of his time compiling a detailed chronicle of English history. But nothing could have prepared him for the account reported to him that night by five fellow monks. Sometime after sunset, the monks had noticed something extraordinary in the sky. Now, Gervais wrote, there was a bright new moon. Its horns were tilted toward the east, and suddenly the upper horn split in two. So it has from the midpoint. (laughs) Fucking scary. uh, From the midpoint of the division, a flaming torch sprang up, spewing out over a considerable distance, fire, hot coals, and sparks. Meanwhile, the body of the moon, which was below, writhed, as it were, in anxiety, and to put it in the words of those who reported it to me and saw it with their own eyes, the moon throbbed like a wounded snake. This extraordinary sight, he noted, was repeated a dozen times or more, the, the flame assuming various twisting shapes at random and then returning to normal. Then, after these transformations, the moon from horn to horn, that is, along its whole length, took on a blackish appearance. Today, many lunar experts believe the monks have been watching the formation of the moon's enormous Giordano Bruno crater, named after an Italian philosopher. It was probably created by the impact of an asteroid or comet, which would explain the burst of molten matter seen by the monks, though they, of course, 
had no way of understanding what they had witnessed because wow. they're dumb. Can you fucking imagine? Um, if we even saw that today, that, I would I would just fucking faint. Like, I think that would be horrifying. I, I think I would be paralyzed by fear that the world is ending. Yeah. Like, I'm watching the world end right now. So, can you imagine how they felt? No. Probably very similar. Um, yeah. Interesting. Uh, number seven on this list... Uh, happened on the 11th of June in 323, and this is an interesting one. Alexander the Great dies after a drinking binge. Alexander of Macedon, master of the world from the shores of the Adriatic to the mountains of Afghanistan, spent the early summer of 323 BC in Babylon. Only a year before, his troops had persuaded him to turn back from a planned invasion of India. But already he was planning new conquests, hoping to strike at the heart of Arabia. On the top of that, the 32-year-old king was pressing forward with his plans to integrate Persians and Macedonians, even urging his officers to take Persian wives. And then, sometime around the beginning of June, disaster struck. Accounts of Alexander's death differ widely. The most popular told by the historian Plutarch holds that he was taken ill after after a drinking session with his friend, Medius of Larissa. In the next few days, Alexander developed a fever. Although he managed to put in an appearance before his worried troops, his condition worsened until he could no longer speak. At last, sometime in the night between 10 and 11th of June, he died. Since so many Macedonian rulers fell victim to assassination, speculation was also surrounding Alexander's death. Many historians have suggested that he had been poisoned by rivals within the Macedonian elite or by officers outraged by his Persian affections. The true explanation may be more prosaic. In the festering heat of summer in Babylon, the hard-drinking Alexander may well have succumbed to typhoid or malaria. His death had a shattering impact. Within weeks, the Macedonian Empire was already falling apart. As his officers began to carve out their own rival dominions, even Alexander's sarcophagus hijacked, was hijacked and taken to Alexandria to become a great weapon in the Civil War. I foresee great contests, he's supposed to have said, at my funeral games. He was right. Yeah, that was a very, very interesting time in history as well. Wow. Because he died at a very young age after creating one of the largest empires in the world and without an heir. You know, I he was 32 when he did this. And uh, I'm 34 now. And I'm still in school. In case anybody wants to feel super great about where they are in life. I'm just trying to conquer my little two-foot-by-two-foot empire. <laughs> Let's not let's not go into the whole world conquering thing right now. I am the master of this dojo. God damn it, um, I'm mastering this closet that I'm in right now. <laughs> All right, so the last one is uh June 4, 1989. Hundreds die in Tiananmen Square. So this was there was also an anniversary of this this week, although not in China where you're not allowed to Talk about, about it. Yeah. Interesting. By the beginning of June 1989, Tiananmen Square in the center of Beijing was packed with demonstrators. After weeks of mounting protests with students and dissidents at the forefront, the Chinese Communist government had declared martial law and sent some 250,000 troops to the capital, but still the crowds refused to disperse. On June 2nd, party leaders, including the country's effective leader, Deng Xiaoping, agreed that it was time to crack down. Tiananmen Square, they agreed, must be cleared so that the riot can be halted and order restored to the capital. The following evening, June 3rd, troops and tanks thundered into the center of Beijing as state television warned residents to stay in their homes. By about 10 o'clock, reports were emerging of bloodshed at major intersections on the roads into the city. Inside Tiananmen Square, some 70,000 people stood and waited. Then, just after midnight, the first armored vehicle appeared from the west. Some students threw stones and bricks while others tried to prevent them. It was vital, they said, that their protests remained nonviolent. 
what followed remains the single most controversial moment in China's recent history. In the early hours of June 4, the army cleared the square by force. Government officials initially claimed the action resulted in no deaths, later revised to about 200. Other estimates suggest that as many as 1,000 people lost their lives. Either way, the result was the same. The protesters had been defeated. One image taken the next day captured the terrible drama. A photograph of a lone man holding two shopping bags standing in front of a column of tanks. Who he was and what he was doing remains uncertain. At the time, there were rumors that he was arrested and dragged before a firing squad. We may well never know. I actually just looked this up. I think the Wikipedia article did have his name, but everything I've seen says that nobody knows what happened to him afterward. Wow. I remember, do you remember what, like, when this happened? I do. I was, I was five or four, so I don't remember. Yeah, I very, very distinctly remember seeing it on the news and just being fucking horrified because the way that they played it out back then was that these are just some innocent student protesters, and this is what communism mm-hmm. does. They yeah. stomp down the masses that disagree with what they espouse, their, their, the way they live, and... I think yeah. that the way media took it here was that this is what happens when you try to have a communist society. This is what happens. People are upset. People are unhappy and they will uprise eventually. And I think there was really and, a lot of speculation back then that this would turn into a major overthrow of communist government in China, which did not happen. But it was a very right. interesting period in time. And I think that Many people thought, hey, communism is done. Down with communism, it's over. And then, you know, you also had the period where the Berlin Wall fell and all that other stuff that was happening at the same time. And and Russia was breaking up into individual parts. USSR Mm -hmm. was breaking up into individual countries. And I think people thought, hey, this is it. Communism is done. But China managed to hold on to it despite protests such as this. Well, and and that's all the same time, right? So this was June of 1989 and the Soviet Union... um, dissolved on December 25th of 1989, and the Berlin Wall fell in 90. So I can imagine why you would think that this would all be like a domino effect of, because this, because communism was falling in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, and there were, and, and one of the things I'm kind of curious about is, because there were other like like uh, citizen uprisings in Eastern Europe, like in the Czech, or Czechoslovakia at the time, um, in Poland and Eastern Germany and things like that, but they were in the fifties. And so I'm wondering if this was maybe the first one that had like this kind of national news coverage. And maybe that's why it was like, I don't know. It's it's, because those, they did the same things there in terms of like militarization and martial law and stuff. Yeah. It makes me wonder though, how China was able to hold on to the last vestiges of communism where other countries had let it fall. And I think some of that had to do with the massive population in China and the widespread level of poverty. I think if people had more access to money and resources, then perhaps a revolution would have been more effective. But they were so downtrodden, so poor, and many of the people there have been starving for many years and living off very, very little. Right. And and the fall of the Soviet Union was precipitated by... You you have Mikhail Gorbachev who wanted to make relations better with the West and things like that, but also their economy was failing. Like that's pretty much how we ended up winning the Cold War is that we outspent them. Yeah. Um, and so, and and then you had um, a dictator who wasn't willing to kill his people anymore, like they had in the past. Yeah. And it sounds like China that obviously wasn't the case. You had somebody that still was willing to do that. Interesting. Very, very interesting. I find it fascinating, though, that the invasion of Normandy was not on this list of great events. Um, so yeah. I'm going to add that. Other things. 
I'm going to add that as a post note here in case you are living yeah. under a rock and do not know what happened there for D-Day. It was the invasion of Normandy. The Western Allies of World War II launched the largest amphibious invasion in history when they attacked German positions on Normandy Beach, located on the northern coast of France. This happened June 6, 1944. They were able to establish a beachhead as part of op as part of Operation Overlord after a successful D-Day, the first day of the invasion. What this ended up doing, Allied land forces came from U.S., Britain, Canada, and free French forces in the weeks following the invasion. Polish forces and contingents from Belgium, Czechoslovakia, Greece, and the Netherlands participated in the ground campaign. Most also provided air and naval support among the elements of the Royal Australian Air Force, New Zealand, and the Royal Norwegian Navy. Um, the Normandy invasion began with an overnight parachute and glider landing, massive air attacks, and naval bombardments. In the early morning, amphibious landings commenced on five beaches, co-named Sword, Juno, Gold, Omaha, and Utah, with troops from the U.S. landing on Omaha and Utah, Britain landing on Gold and Sword, and Canada landing on Juno. During the invasion, the remaining elements of the airborne divisions landed. Land forces used on D-Day sailed from bases along the south coast of England, the most important of those being Portsmouth. So essentially this was like, this was it. This was what essentially ended the war. Yeah, this was when it really started to turn in our favor that, because uh, they still, Germany still was planning to invade uh, Britain at the time. And this is kind of when they realized that they, that they basically just couldn't last, outlast the, on both, both fronts, the, the east and the west. But I think that it was also so they, a very concerted effort where they took, just everybody working together to get this done. I think in the past, most of the skirmishes and different events had been sort of bits and pieces of different countries doing different things. And I think this was the first real effort where they took everyone together and sort of threw everything at it at once. And I think that's what turned the tide for that reason. It also, just kind of a quick Google, it looks like there were 10,000 plus casualties on the Allied side and between 4,000 and 9,000 casualties on the Axis side on, on the Normandy, Normandy landings. So um, uh, for those of you who are not history buffs, Allied is, Axis is, which countries? Oh, um, the Allies were the Free French, Eng uh, Britain, America, and the Soviet Union. And the Axis was um, Germany, Germany Italy, and Japan. Interesting. I mean, obviously, some people are not history buffs, and they don't know yeah. the connection of those. Obviously, I am not one of those people, but I thought just for the sake of the listeners who don't really know a lot about it, which some of the younger yeah. listeners don't, and that's okay. Um, we're, we're educating yeah. you. Uh, is there anything else and that you, you think should have been I on do. this list that's missing? Yes. There's two things I want to add, but if you do find yourself in New Orleans, they, they have recently opened up a World War II museum. That is fantastic, and I highly recommend you go. Two other things I wanted to bring up. Um, also on June 6th, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, oh, Bobby wow. Kennedy. He was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles shortly after winning the the California Democratic primary. Okay. He was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan, and there is a conspiracy there. Some people think that maybe he didn't act alone. There is some CIA interest because, of course, it's a Kennedy thing. Yeah. Um, Bobby Kennedy is my favorite of the Kennedys. I think he's the best president that we never had. And part two that I wanted to add is the Korean War actually started on June 25th of 1950 wow. is when North Korea invaded South Korea. Very, very interesting events that had a yep. major and lasting worldwide impact that were not necessarily added to this list. And I'm sure that we have other events in June that we have not included on this list that have had an impact on people. And if you know of one of those events, 
please feel free to shoot us an email and we'll talk about it on the show. We have no problem with that. We know we cannot be I all want to inclusive. Add one more. Sorry. Go ahead. Just this little at the bottom of this list it says on June twenty fifth, nineteen seventy eight, a San Francisco artist Gilbert Baker designs the hippie influence rainbow flag with eight stripes to be flown during the city's gay freedom pride gay freedom day parade. So that was the invention of the pride flag. Hmm. It was on June 25th, 1978. Interesting. And June is Pride Month, so. Oh, there are some other historical notable anniversaries. The cannon misfires during a performance of Henry VIII, accidentally igniting the theater's thatched roof at the Globe Theater in Southwick, and it burns to the ground. It happened June 29th, 1613. June 3rd, 1937, in the Chateau de Tours, the Duke of Windsor, formerly Edward VIII, marries Wallace Simpson, his brother George forbids his brothers from attending the nuptials. So if you don't know who that is, the, the, it's the king that abdicated the throne so that he could marry a divorced woman. She was an American Actress. woman who was somewhat scandalous. Yep. He abdicated the throne, which essentially means he said, I don't want to be king anymore so that I can marry this woman. And it was a very scandalous moment in British yeah. history and in the U.S. as well. couldn't marry a divorced woman. So exactly. you have to abdicate. Very and, interesting. Uh, they also, Duke of Windsor and Wallace Simpson, um, also not exactly anti-Nazi. No. Um, interesting, interesting. Maybe we have to get a little bit more into that story on a separate episode. Uh, June yeah. 7th, 1494, Spain and Portugal agreed to a treaty to divide the New World between them, carving up the newly discovered Americas along a meridian 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands. Interesting. And June 9th, 1934, the famous Donald Duck made his first appearance in short Walt Disney cartoon. Interesting events in June. If we have forgotten one, please feel free to shoot us an email. Again, it's very hard to be all-inclusive when it comes to things like this. This is the point where we say goodbye, so long, farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe our little show. We love it when you guys do that. It really, really helps us out tremendously. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send them to our email at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We'll put that in the show notes for the day. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Darcy, social media? At the BFD Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Yeah.